Hello, everybody, and welcome to Get Lit Minute, your weekly podcast for all things poetic, poetry, and poets. Get Lit is a nonprofit organization that uses poetry and spoken word to increase literacy and empower young people. My name is Nia Lewis, and I'll be your new host. To give some background for our lovely new listeners, our podcast focuses on the lives, history, and works of classic poets and modern day contemporary poets. The Get Lit Anthology is a little special this year because all of the poems featured are written by black poets. As a black woman, I am so excited to dive into the poetry world of black empowerment, black mental health, and black oppression with you. I am so excited to be a part of a project that is uplifting black voices and art. The goal that I really want to reach in life is to teach the world other people's stories and cultures in hopes that it can really spark change and understanding. And this podcast is helping me strive towards that goal. In order to really make change, I feel like we need to educate ourselves and listen when other people are hurting. I've recently lost some friends because when I said I was hurting, they couldn't quite understand and they weren't willing to learn why I was hurting. So today, I will be discussing one of the literary voices of the civil rights movement. This poet has really inspired me and has heavily influenced a lot of movements like Black Lives Matter and really the way that black people view their reality. Although they're considered a classic poet, you can really relate to their topics because they discuss a lot of problems that are happening today. So sit back, relax, and maybe grab a snack because you are in for a journey to get lit, get literacy, and get literate with one of my favorite poets, James Baldwin. Baldwin was born on August 2nd, 1924 in Harlem, New York. He was an only child to Emma Jones, who was married to his stepfather, David Baldwin, who was a Baptist minister. Emma Jones had left James's biological father because he was dealing with drug abuse. Growing up, Baldwin didn't really have the best relationship with his stepfather until he started following his footsteps and joining the church. When Baldwin was a teen, he found his love for writing. Me too, I was a teen when I did as well. Um, he wrote many of his articles uh, for his school magazine. Many of his teachers believed that Baldwin was gifted. He experienced police brutality at the age of 10, which he later wrote in his writings. I thought that this fact was pretty interesting and kind of sad that he experienced something like that at such a young age and violence so early. I even experienced my first racist event being called the N-word at a very young age and in that moment I didn't really know how to process it and a few years later I was even called the N-word again and in that moment I just kind of laughed because I was like wow like someone genuinely like feels this way about me and it was just crazy but I didn't take it too hard because that's just what they thought and you know I can't get too personal or be hurt by that because it's just ignorance. So at Frederick Douglass Jr. High, Baldwin had met County Colin, a poet and a great figure of the Harlem Renaissance, as his middle school teacher. Colin introduced many black writers and his journey in France to the class, which really influenced Baldwin later on. He attended DeWitt Clinton High School, but he decided to hold off on going to college so he could support his family. He worked lower paying jobs for six years and moved to Greenwich Village where he met many artists like Marlon Brando, Burt Lancaster, and Buford Delaney. Buford Delaney was an artist and he became a mentor to Baldwin. Baldwin didn't really believe that black people could be artists or even make it as artists, but that really changed once he met Delaney. 
Greenwich Village was a welcoming and safe environment for Baldwin, so it really allowed for him to open up more about his suppressed sexuality. In 1945, Richard Wright, Baldwin's literary hero, gave Baldwin a $500 fellowship from the Eugene F. Saxon Foundation after reading his first draft of his autobiography, Go Tell It on the Mountain. In 1948, a lot of hardships were happening in Baldwin's life. His book sales were low, he was facing the oppression of being a gay black man in America, and he lost his best friend, Eugene Worth. He explains, My luck was running out. I was going to go to jail, I was going to kill somebody or be killed. My best friend had committed suicide two years earlier, jumping off the George Washington Bridge. He felt that there was no hope for him in America, so he moved to France with only $40 in his pocket, which is crazy because you can't do that now, but while in France, he met many writers like Sol, Bello, and Philip Roth, and his career and mental health flourished for the better. He wrote a lot of his most famous writings like Notes of a Native Son, 1955, Giovanni's Room, 1956, and Just Above My Head in 1979. These books sparked how he wanted to change the racial divide in America. He wrote in Notes to a Native Son, I love America more than any country in the world, and exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. This is exactly how black people feel when we're told to leave and go back to where we came from. This is our home, and even through oppression, black people really appreciate living here. I appreciate living here, and a lot of people feel like, oh, you're un-American because you criticize America, and it's like, there's nothing wrong with criticizing something. You can love something so much and realize that there are imperfections and there are flaws that need to change. Baldwin returned to the U.S. in 1957 to journal what was happening in America at that time. During his time in the U.S., he did a lot of speaking tours and debates in the South. Through this, he was able to meet Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Medgar Evers, who inspired him both emotionally and politically. He participated in the March on Washington in 1963 and Selma to Montgomery March in 1965. Baldwin and several other cultural activists met with Attorney General Robert Kennedy to discuss how to end the racial divide in America. This meeting left Kennedy with a positive outlook on the civil rights movement. Baldwin continued his activism on racism 23 years later in his nonfiction novel, The Evidence of Things Not Seen, where he wrote about the Atlanta child murders. In April 1987, Baldwin was diagnosed with cancer of the esophagus. He tried many treatments to get rid of his cancer, but in a short period of time, it caused his organs to shut down. Baldwin passed away on December 1st, 1987 in France. At his service, a Mary Baraka called Baldwin God's Black Revolutionary Mouth. Baldwin changed many lives and his words and thoughts hit very close to home for me. I always knew of Baldwin and I've seen his books, but I never really knew his work or who he truly was until a few years ago. My neighbor had looked at me almost as if I was crazy for not knowing who uh, James Baldwin was and she explained to me that he was the voice and writer for black people. So after that, I decided to just really like look into his work and my professors in college started to show some of his interviews and I was completely changed. I wrote an essay on his story, Sunny Blues, um, in English. And there was just so much to that story that I felt like I can relate to and I feel like a lot of black people can relate to now. It was, you know, drug, violence, dealing with 
an oppressive America, racism. It was a lot, and Sonny was someone who felt like there was nothing for him. In America at the time, black people assumed that, you know, the GI Bill could really help them, and in reality, it didn't benefit them at all. And Sonny was someone who thought that joining the military, he would have these amazing benefits that was going to be promised to him, and it didn't happen, and he lost hope for America. And he found love for music, and that was something I feel a lot of black people did. Music was a way for us to express our oppression, to express our feelings for how we felt about things. And so Sunny's Blues was something I felt a lot of black people can really just relate to, something I can relate to. There's people that I know that can really connect to Sunny and who basically are Sunny. And I personally feel that a lot of black people find James so powerful and someone who was a leader because he really expresses our feelings of hurt and pains in ways that we just didn't know how to put into words. He expresses it and writes it so perfect. And I'm like, whoa, like, I just, whoa, I didn't even like think about that, but I really connected with that. I really understand that. So today, I really want to read you an excerpt from The Fire Next Time My Dungeon Shook. The Fire Next Time is Baldwin's nonfiction novel of some of his letters on his views of racism and his belief that America is a multiracial society. In his letter, he explains how black and white people can truly end racism. He states that black and white people are brothers, we're family, and that in our own individual ways, we are dealing with oppressive America, and that it is important in order for us to really spark change, to kind of not really conform to each other, but to really understand how we're all individually acting upon this racism, why we're doing the things that we do. And in order for us to really understand each other and really understand our backgrounds, we can really start to uplift each other. So here's an excerpt from The Fire Next Time My Dungeon Shook by James Baldwin. There is no reason for you to try to become like white people. There is no basis, whatever, for their impertinent assumption that they must accept you. The really terrible thing, old buddy, is that you must accept them. And I mean that very seriously. You must accept them and accept them with love. For these innocent people have no other hope they are, in effect, still trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. They have had to believe for many years and for innumerable reasons that black men are inferior to white men. Many of them indeed know better, but as you will discover, people find it very difficult to act on what they know. To act is to be committed, and to be committed is to be in danger. In this case, the danger in the minds of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. Try to imagine how you would feel if you woke up one morning to find the sun shining and all the stars aflame. You would be frightened because it is out of the order of nature. Any upheaval in the universe is terrifying because it so profoundly attacks one's sense of one's own reality. Well, the black man has functioned in the white man's world as a fixed star, as an immovable pillar. And as he moves out of his place, heaven and earth are shaken to their foundations. You don't be afraid. 
I said that it was intended that you should perish in the ghetto, perish by never being allowed to go behind the white man's definitions, by never being allowed to spell your proper name. You have, and many of us have, defeated this intention. And by a terrible law, a terrible paradox, those innocents who believed that your imprisonment made them safe are losing their grasp of reality. But these men are your brothers, your lost younger brothers, and if the word integration means anything, this is what it means, that we, with love, shall force our brothers to see themselves as they are, to cease fleeing from reality and begin to change it. Wow, <laughs> this excerpt is just so powerful, and I feel like it was something I had to keep like reading over and over again so I could fully take in his words. So I want to leave you with a little last-minute quote by Baldwin that I think is very important for us to carry with us every day. I am what time, circumstance, history have made me, certainly, but I am much more than that. So are we all. Get Lit Minute is a production of Get Lit Words Ignite. This podcast is produced by Samuel Curtis and executive produced by Diane Luby Lane and engineered by Peter Davis. This episode was researched, written, and edited by me, Nia Lewis, alongside Bridget Yang. Lucas Lane is our digital editor, and our editorial advisors are Kelly Grace Thomas and Colleen Hamilton. Special thanks to the entire Get Lit staff and our donors who made this work possible, the teachers who use this podcast to educate their students, and to all the students of life everywhere for tuning in and spending time with us today. If you want more, check out the rest of our episodes on our website, getlit.org. That is G-E-T-L-I-T dot O-R-G. See you next time.